Jesus, we do love you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thanks for everything that uh, you've given us in our church here. And we look forward to having a good time tonight and in your Bible. We ask you, Father, to take the questions tonight and mold them by your spirit into the thing that we all need. Uh, we look forward to all that you do for us, and we love you so much. And thank you now, Father. Uh, bless this time. In Jesus' name, for the sake we ask it. Amen. Before we get to our first question tonight, let me just remind you of a couple of things. Tonight is a, tonight, yeah, right. This weekend is an incredibly busy weekend. Uh, so let me get everything out so we can get it going, and then we'll go from there. Right after church tonight, Bible study, remember now, ladies, for those of you who signed up for the uh, women's shelter, the lady who is, uh, the lady who's gonna, who heads that up is going to meet with you as soon as, uh, as soon as Bible study is over, if you ladies would go down to the front here and take a front seat, get down in the first two or three rows so everybody's together. Uh, if you have children, if some of you ladies who do not are in that, uh, or some of you guys, if it's your husbands, if you'll kind of take the children and let them stay out here so we don't kind of mess up. There'll be enough going on in here. We're tearing down the tables and everything. That's no problem, but I, want, I don't want the kids running back and forth. So if you'll help with that, I appreciate it. Also, tonight is the last night to get your softball application in, and uh, you want to get that taken care of. Also, uh, Memorial Day picnic. Uh, for those of you ladies who are going to help me cook, uh, Nikki's going to get with you and give you all the details, but you need to be at my house Sunday at one uh, uh, quarter to two to pick up your ribs. Uh, she'll talk to you about that, just so you know. I'll have everything that you need. All you will need is a big oven, and uh, you don't need to bring that with you when you come, by the way. But I'll give you everything else you need, instructions and everything, and you'll, we'll take care of all of that. But you need to be at my house at quarter till two so we can get all the ribs passed out and go from there. <sighs> can you repeat that? <laughs> Do what now? What'd she say? Can you repeat that? What'd she say? Can you repeat that? Oh, yes. So anyway, that's where we're at. Let's tell who's got the first question tonight. Tammy, yes, ma'am. Frogs? Oh, by the way, did you see over in Greece this week that they were attacked by frogs? Hundreds of thousands of frogs descended on the country of Greece. Millions of frogs. But they killed them all because they all croaked. The moment I saw that on the news, I thought of the, I thought of the not only the tribulation period, but back in Pharaoh's time. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, what's your question? Elaborate on why we are having frogs now <laughs> with everything that's going on in the world. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't see the frog. I mean, I obviously, I look at that and I put everything in a Bible context. And for those of you that aren't up on, on current events, uh, turn me down a little bit up there. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of ringing in my own ears up here. Um, in Greece this week, um, uh, it showed a picture. There's just millions and millions and millions of frogs that are descended on uh, the country of Greece. And um, obviously, when I see that, I think back of Exodus uh, chapter 1 through chapter uh, 10, where when God was dealing with Pharaoh over letting the people go, one of the things that they did was, was brought the frogs up. Now, the only difference is that in Greece, they're little bitty frogs, 
and in Pharaoh's time, I'm sure they were the Ugongous big frogs. But uh, nevertheless, it just goes to show you that those things do happen. Now, and here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. Um, you know, in, in one other time where somebody will say, well, see, uh, there's no real miracle to it because uh, here it happened today and this is not a miracle. The frog just all showed up. And um, so, therefore, that's what it was back then. Man will take that and try to just credit the Bible by showing here that it happened by natural elements. So it was natural elements back there. And, of course, I don't think for a moment that God had anything to do with the frogs in Greece. Um uh, but uh, I knew he, I know he had a lot to do with the frogs back in Exodus. So, but this goes to show you, you're paying attention. A lot of things are weird out there today that's going on, I'll tell you. But, yeah. I don't know what else to tell you. That's the end of my frog story. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, the what now? The resurrection of the flesh. Or of our body. Is it the same as in Job 19 when Job describes uh, seeing God? No, no, not at all. Where's that at in Job? Uh, Job 19:24. Now here's his question, and that's a good question, and it'll help you put something together here. Uh, Job 19, if that's where it's at. It's where Job says, For in my flesh I shall see God. I'm not sure it's 19. Is it 19? Yeah, verse 26. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Now here's one of the, now this doesn't seem like a lot, but this is one of the great verses in all of the Bible that kind of puts a bigger study together for you. Now his question here originally was uh, in the resurrection of our flesh. And he wanted to know if this is what it's talking about here. Now, let me, let me clarify something here, uh, and this is what I, what I want to understand, that your flesh is not resurrected. That's the thing you've got to realize, that you have a body and a soul and a spirit. We've talked about that many, many times. Your body is the equivalent to your flesh. There's no question about that. And what happens is, is simply this. When the rapture takes place, the Bible says that your body, your flesh, is changed instantaneously into the glorious body of Jesus Christ. So your flesh is not resurrected. Uh, you get a glorified body. That glorified body is just like Christ's body. And that's why right now, even though we're still here um, uh, turn over to 1 John here. Keep your finger in Job and come back to 1 John uh, chapter 3. And I'll show you uh, again what he's talking about here. 1 John chapter 3. Now this is a great verse that you want to get down and you want to understand what he's saying here. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, because what he just said, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Now watch verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now he's talking about you and me right now. 
If you're saved here tonight, if you're saved here tonight, this verse 2 is applying to you. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now you say, well, I'm a woman. Well, you may be a woman on the outside, but you're, the thing that when you got saved is you got a man that took up residency inside you. That man is the Lord Jesus Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit of God. So in that sense, you may be a woman here tonight, but you're a son in that sense. So it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. But now look at the next verse. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. You see, you're a son of God here tonight, but it doesn't appear that you're a son of God. You know why? Because the thing that's a son of God about you is what took place on the inside when you got saved, not the outside. When you got saved, your flesh didn't change. When you got saved, your flesh is just the same. You look the same. Uh, you didn't get any older. You didn't get any younger. Uh, you didn't lose any weight. You didn't gain any weight. You are the same as far as your flesh is concerned after you get saved than before you got saved. The thing that changed about you was your soul. And your soul, we know now at the time of salvation, got separated from your flesh. And then God's Holy Spirit came down and sealed himself within your soul. That gives you the ability now to communicate with God. And the flesh, the bad part of us, is separated from that. Now, at that point, uh, when Christ comes back, uh, your flesh is, has nothing good about it. And the Bible says in the book of Romans that, that in our flesh is no good things. So the moment you're resurrected, the very split second, if you're dead and you're resurrected, that flesh gets changed. And that's why this verse here in 1 John chapter 3 is so important. It says, Behold, uh, beloved, now, right now, today, tonight, are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So your flesh gets changed in a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in a twinkling of an eye. And you now become like Christ in a glorified body. So, Josh, it's, it's not the right question to ask in a theological sense or a biblical sense that your flesh gets resurrected, okay? Your flesh doesn't get resurrected. You're, you get a glorified body, and that's what your resurrection body is. Now, come back to Job 19. Verse 26, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now, there is a clear verse that tells you that somebody in their flesh is going to see God. Now, let me reconcile this for you. The only people down, you know, your Bible is basically divided into two groups, the Old Testament and the New Testament, basically. And we know that everybody in the Old Testament is in one category and basically the church age uh, is in another category. 
We know that there's a difference in the Old Testament the way God deals with men uh, than there is in the New Testament when God deals with men. We know back there in the Old Testament when a man died and was righteous with God, he didn't go to heaven, he went to Abraham's bosom. We know right now in the church age when you and I die, if we're saved, we go straight to heaven. There's a difference. Now, the other difference is this, and most people don't understand this. The only people who get glorified bodies... The only people who get glorified bodies, now this may be basic elementary, but it's very, it's very important to understand this because a lot of things build on this. The only people who get glorified bodies when Christ comes back and this whole thing goes off into eternity is the church, you and me. Now, why is that? Somebody raise your hand and explain that to me in a way. Yes. That's right. Her, her answer was that right now, because we're part of the church, they weren't part of the church. There was no church. And the real church in the Bible is not Old Paths Baptist Church. The real church in the Bible is the body of Christ, which is the true church. So the Old Testament saints were not in that body. They couldn't be in that body because nobody could be in that body till that body came down and died on the cross, died and been and resurrected. So they're not in that body. Therefore, they never do get a glorified body. We get the glorified body because we are in the church and the church is called the body of Christ and that's the body we get when we get our resurrection body. So the Old Testament saints, they get a body, but it's not a glorified body. They get a body that is in some way a flesh and blood body, much like what they had in the Old Testament. And that's why when Job talks here, he says that in my flesh I shall see God because that's the way the Old Testament saints, they're going to have a body in the flesh. They do not get a glorified body. And that's the basic fundamental difference between the two. I'll show it to you in another angle. Come back to the book of Revelation. This will help you grasp it. Look over to Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 11. Now, this judgment here is called the great white throne judgment. It's a judgment for all the unsaved people all down through history. This is the last judgment in the Bible. It's also a place where all the Old Testament saints, the millennial saints, and the tribulation saints show up. Now, they show up to be judged Let me read it for you. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were open and another book was open, which is the, here it comes, the book of life. Now you want to mark that in your Bible if it's not marked already. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. 
and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now that book of life is found back in Malachi chapter 3. Come on back to Malachi. Last book in your Old Testament before we go to Matthew. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Now watch it. It's talking about the Old Testament saints and everybody that's connected with the nation of Israel. Now watch. Verse 16. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him that feared, uh, uh, for him, for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in the day, in that day. Now what's that day? Second coming of Christ. When I make up my jewels, I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Now that book of remembrance right there in verse 16 is the book of life that we just looked at in Revelation chapter 20. That book of life is for the Old Testament saints, it's for the tribulation saints, and it's for the millennial saints. God looked down and he saw people that thought upon his name who wanted to have a relationship with him, and so he got a book of remembrance, and he writes their name down there in that book. At the great white throne judgment, these people show up with all the unsaved people, and if their name is found in that book, then they do not get cast into the lake of fire. And that will be the Old Testament saints, that'll be the tribulation saints, and that'll be the millennial saints. All the Jews and all of the Gentiles from the Old Testament tribulation period and the millennium. Everybody got that? Now let me show you the other book. Back to Revelation chapter 21 this time. Verse 1. All right, we just finished Revelation chapter 20. Now we move into chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, watch it very carefully, as a bride adorned for her husband. Then who are we talking about here now? Who's this? The church. The church of the bride of Christ. We just saw back in Revelation chapter 19 a couple of Sunday mornings ago where at the judgment seat of Christ, the bride had made herself ready. Now the city, New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven like a bride. Why? Because Revelation chapter 21 shows you that the place called New Jerusalem belongs to the church. That's where the church's abode is during what God is going to do out of new eternity. Now watch. Verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. 
For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, people down on earth. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of nations into it. Now watch it very carefully. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh an abomination or maketh a lie. But they, but they, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see that thing? You got two books. You got two books. You got a book for the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, and the, and the millennial saints, which called the book of life. Then you got another book that you and I are written in that's called the Lamb's book of life. It's called the Lamb's book of life because we were redeemed by the Lamb, see? It's called the Lamb's book of life because uh, you and I are part of the body of Christ. So we have a city, New Jerusalem, which is a spiritual city. And the literal nation of Israel has the literal Jerusalem on earth, which is their literal city. One is literal, one is spiritual. Kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. And that's what you're dealing with. So when Job talks about the fact that in his flesh he's going to see God... He's talking about the fact that he never does get a glorified body. He gets some kind of body by which he is going to uh, exist in, but it's not going to be glorified and it's going to be some kind of flesh body where you and I never get the resurrection of the flesh, but the moment we get resurrected, we are changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye and we get a glorified body just like Christ. And that basically shows you that the whole Bible is built around those two books. And uh, the Bible is not really, you know, everybody makes the Bible such a hard book. It's really not a hard book. If you just get it broken down in the basic simplistic way that God intended for it to be broken down. Your whole Bible and every man and woman on this planet gets broken down in two books. They're either in the book of life or in the Lamb's book of life, or they're not in either one. And it's just the way that it is. So uh, when Job is talking about it, he's talking about it from an, uh, from an Old Testament saint standpoint that he never gets a glorified body. He gets some kind of flesh body. And I'm not sure what kind of body it is, but I know it's not a glorified body because that glorified body is, is reserved for people who are part of the body of Christ, the church. The spiritual church, and that's you and me from the crucifixion of Christ up to the rapture right here. 2,000 basic years in the Bible. Yeah, Bob? Did the Lamb's Book of Life do, does it have anything to do with when we were raptured out in heaven? No, it doesn't. There's no place ever in the Bible where anybody looks in the Lamb's Book of Life for anything because once you're in that, you're saved eternally and there's no question about it. It's only the book of life that they go into. Now, when you're, you know, when, you're, uh, when you're saved, your name is written down in that book, the Lamb's Book of Life, and uh, it's there. So that's what you got. that help you, Josh? Yeah. yeah. And that's, there again, it comes down to just focusing on the right way to think of things in the Bible, you got to use Bible terminology the way that it's intended to be used. 
Uh, and it's you're just something that everybody has to learn. I mean, you know, we all do it. Uh, but it's a thing where, I, in my mind, with the Bible, I'm always focusing on exactly the right way the Bible says what it says. And when you talk about the resurrection of the flesh for you and me, that doesn't compute because that's not possible for you and for me because of the fact that our body is changed. In a moment, in an instant twinkling of an eye, we get Christ's glorified body. So there is no resurrection of our flesh in that sense, yes. So when Job is referring to shout, that's the millennium. I'm sorry, what now? In, so 1926, Job's referring to the millennium. Yes, he's referring to the future, for sure, yeah. I would say the millennium uh, and beyond, yes. Yeah, I said it's for millennial tribulation and Old Testament saints. Okay. Yeah, all three people groups. And then in verse 27, when you're talking about New Jerusalem, um, where it says, And there shall no wise enter into anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. At that point in the timeline, there is no sin and death. So why would that even be an issue? Well, the question is if in verse 27, in that point of the timeline, there is no more sin or no more sinners or no more anything else. Why is he saying that, um, that, that uh, nothing will, no wise will enter in that will defile it and, uh, and, and, and only and, or make it an abomination? And he's just showing you the purity of, of heaven that there's going to be no sin there. Sin was abolished in Revelation chapter 20 when the devil went into the bottomless pit. It's hard, and I don't fully understand everything about eternity. Um, I mean, what I do know, you could put in a thimble. I mean, uh, and uh, what it, it, there's so much out there. But I do know this. It looks like, and this is what you got to look like. This is what you got to put into perspective. Once we get past Revelation chapter 20 and 21, and we begin eternity in Revelation chapter 22, and it moves out into eternity you got to remember this. We're not going to have children because we are in a glorified body. We don't have children. But the people like Job and their natural flesh bodies out of the tribulation, the Old Testament, and the millennium, they are going to continue to have children because that's part of God's kingdom plan back there in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. But here's what you got to remember. These kids are going to grow up in an environment where they, you know, where they never know or have never known anything but the Lord. They're not ever going to know about the devil. They're never going to know about sin. They're never going to have any concept about of, of unrighteousness or doing wrong. They are going to grow up in the purest environment that anybody could ever want or have. And that is where the beauty of God and the beauty of a perfect society, it really depends on that. All down through history, man has written about uh, a, a perfect utopia. Every great philosopher has thought about the fact that, uh, uh, that there would be a place in time that man would get to that would be absolutely perfect, that everybody would be happy. 
believe it or not, most people don't understand this, but even in the demented minds of guys like Stalin and Lenin and even in Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and, and just about every, every world dictator down through history, his goal was to produce a society that he ran that in his mind was going to be perfect. Of course, it was only perfect for him. And he didn't bother who he killed or wiped out or what he had to do or who got tortured to do it because in his mind, all these great leaders are trying to establish some kind of kingdom. That's why in our own country, you, you, we, I don't know if you can even grasp it because most people are so out of touch with it all. This is the problem in our own government and our own country. We have deluded ourselves because we're so far from the Bible that we have placed, replaced the gospel going around the world, freeing men from their sins, to our democracy going around the world, freeing men from oppression of the world. And that's not what it's supposed to be. We have gotten so far out of the Bible that we think now that, that going into places like uh, Afghanistan, uh, you know, in, uh, in the Middle East, wherever you fight the war in Iraq or in Iran or whatever, when we go in and we dethrone guys that are bullies and, and dictators and we set up a democracy, we actually think that that's God's work because we're freeing people from oppression. What people don't understand, because we're so far from the Bible, the freeing people from oppression that the Bible talks about is the sin that people are in, and the Bible frees you from that when you get saved. But we're so far out of touch with reality, we see it even in our own government. We think that we are the great white father of, of, of the world because, you know, we'll go in with oppressive nations and we'll, and, and that's why we justify a lot what we do. And of course, uh, all down through history, you know, our country has went in. We have been part of the toppling of a tyrant many times through assassination or many times through just inciting a revolution that got him to throne so we then could go in and put up some guy who was going to bring them democracy. You realize why Osama bin Laden hates us so much? Osama bin Laden was once our ally against the Russians when the Russians had Afghanistan. And he was on our side and worked with our CIA to try to do those things. And, of course, uh, when you do that, um, the motives get all wrong. And all those guys turn around in time and then hate us and attack us. And the reason why he hates us today and wants to destroy us is because he's seen how we have operated in the years past and the things that we've done. Now, our government looks at it and we say, well, we're doing it for democracy. We need to free people. Well, I'm telling you something. The difference between your kingdom you're setting up and God's kingdom that he's setting up, that the freedom they're going to have is from sin. And there'll be no perfect kingdom any way, shape, or form as long as our goal is to free people from governments of, uh, governments of tyranny when we still leave them shackled to their sin. And the only way you're going to produce the utopia that everybody is looking for is by having a sinless king with a sinless planet and the goal being God's righteousness prevailing. 
not your government overthrowing another government so you can free people. Because the old sin nature is still here, the devil's still here, and the plan of God is still uh, in operation, and the devil's plan against it, and nothing's going to change. All history follows that same little pattern. And of course, the real utopia is going to be when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, and we move on into eternity, whatever that's going to be. But the one thing I know for sure, that there'll never be mention of the devil. There'll never be a mention of, uh, there'll never be any more sin. Your kids will grow up in an environment that is absolute, not your kids, but people will grow up in an environment where they know not sin. And that's hard for us to comprehend, but that's going to be the beauty of it. You'll be in a place where everything you think, everything you say, and everything you do is going to please and honor and glorify Christ. Now, that's heaven. We're a far cry from that today. Now, the model for that, here it is. You want the inspirational application? Once you see that, the model for that is your own family. You're to raise your family up as sin-free as you can in a world that has still got sin around it. And I know you can't do it perfectly, and I know that, you know, that uh, it's, it's, it's not the same in the sense that we have all kinds of things that you have to deal with now. But what we do as parents is we, we raise our children up in that same godly environment that they understand uh, that God's righteousness, God's love, and everything about God is the premier thing that they see before they get a glimpse of the world. And that's just how it works. So that's why he does that. Yes, sir. Yeah, that there, we're talking about the Bible itself because the Bible itself is the book of life. In Philippians, let's go look at it. That's Philippians two what? Two four, or four, chapter four. Oh, verse 3, okay. Yeah, here we go. He says, And I entreat thee also, true uh, a yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellows' labors, whose names are in the book of life. Now, there's a place where the Bible itself is called the book of life. If you want to get technical with it and take it right down to the line, Here's probably what it is. The Old Testament is probably the book of life. And the New Testament is probably the Lamb's book of life. And I think that probably one time somebody said, I forget exactly, that, that there's over, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of names or derivatives of names in the Bible that there is. Your name is probably written in the Bible as we speak right now tonight. But you and I can't see it yet because of the fact that, you know, we don't see those things. We don't have the ability to look beyond that. But when we talk about the Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of Life, we're probably talking about, in the context, the Bible. 
And I would say that the Old Testament is probably the book of life and the New Testament is probably the Lamb's book of life. But in that context, the whole Bible is the book of life. And so that's the reference that he's making it to. I'll, I'll tell you another place that's similar to that. And this is another thing that we don't grasp. And this shows you how many times, even so something has two different parts to it, it's still called the same thing. We talk about dying and going to hell. To us, hell is a place of torment. But when you go to Luke chapter 16, we clearly understand that there's two compartments. There's Abraham's bosom where the, un, where the, where the saved Old Testament saints went that was called paradise where they were comforted. And then there's hell, as we call it, on the other side where they were in torment. And so when we look at it from our human standpoint and the way we communicate, and I understand why we do it, we talk about Abraham's bosom as one place and hell as another place. And yet in the Bible, both compartments, it is proper to call by the name hell. See, we made the term hell just the torment side. But in the true sense of the word, the word hell is for both sides. Just like the book of life is for both the Old Testament and the New Testament as we deal with the whole Bible sense. But when you break it down, the book of life would be for the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament, and the New Testament's probably for the New Testament saints. And that's how it works. But the whole Bible itself is obviously a book of life. So the Bible itself is... is is a book of life that has Old Testament names written in it. It's also a book of life because you come to that book and you can get life, eternal life. So that's the context you got to put it in to make it, that book in Philippians, understand that verse. And that's, that's uh, where he's talking about the whole concept of the Bible. But it takes it one step further if you want to understand the book of life and the book and the Lamb book of life. Probably one is the Old Testament and the other is the New Testament. And um, so that's what you're probably dealing with. And that would be the fact that someplace in that book, your name and my name, if you're saved tonight, is written down in that New Testament someplace. And uh, it would be impossible to figure out who it is or where it is. Uh, but we sing a song in our hymnals, you know, there's a new name written down in glory and it's mine and it's mine. That's the name was talking about. So that's what you got with that. Yeah, Josh. Yes, when he's on the cross and that thief asks him for forgiveness or to be remembered, when Jesus says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, he's talking about the same one in Luke chapter 16. Abraham, which is commonly called Abraham's bosom. Now, I don't, you know, there's certain things that just become standardized in Christianity that, you know, that if you go against the stream, you just more confuse people and it's not a big issue. So technically, in my mind, I know that, that uh, you could see the confusion if, uh, if he would have asked that question to me and I would have answered her from a pure, hardline Bible standpoint. If he would have said to me, well, the guy in Luke chapter 23, when he went to paradise, was that, uh, was that the paradise in Luke chapter 16? And I could say, honestly could say to him, yes, that man went to hell. Well, wait a minute, it was that he was in paradise. Yeah, I know he went to hell. See how confusing that would be? Because in our minds, we think of hell is the torment side and Abraham's bosom and paradise is the good side. And that is true. But in correct biblical terms, both compartments can be called 
by the word hell. But over the years in Bible Christianity, we've separated it out and used the word hell for this and the other side for this. So you're not going to change that. So even though I know the difference, I just deal with it so it don't become confusing. My job is to make the Bible less confusing, not more confusing. So some things you just got to go with the way they've been set up, even though it may not be the correct term. I'll tell you another one. I'll tell you another one. And I say this myself, but you're stuck with it, so you might as well continue to say it. I talk about the fact that you're going to die someday and you're going to, if, you're not, if you're saved, you're going to die and you're going to get to go to heaven and spend an eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. How many hear me say that? You know that's not true? You just saw Revelation chapter 22. You don't go to heaven. You go to New Jerusalem. In fact, it said very clearly that New Jerusalem was coming down out of heaven. See that thing? But I mean, every time I talk to somebody about dying and going to heaven, do I got to go through Revelation chapter 21 and explain it before they understand it? No. Some things you just got to leave the way they are. And as you grow and come to Thursday night Bible study, then I'll teach you the difference and you understand it. But you can see how complicated it could become with things if you, if you I mean, there's some things that that's just the way they are. I mean, if I've been around for, you know, a thousand years ago, I would have straightened it out, but I wasn't. So, yes, ma'am. Well, Bob, is uh, Abraham's bosom like purgatory for the Catholic? No, 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 no. No, purgatory for a Catholic is another whole compartment. It's a place where, it's a, it's a place that, it's a place that, that in their teaching, in their tradition, that kind of gets you, uh, you're not in hell yet, but it's a very, it's not a very comfortable place. Uh, it's kind of like, it's an add-on addition where they, they had to have some place to keep you, that you didn't really go to hell. Uh, and it's kind of like, it, it kind of works like this. <clears throat> in a Catholic church's mindset, if you're really bad, you go to hell. If you're really good, you go to heaven. But if you get caught somewhere in between when you die, and you're not really bad enough to go to hell, but you're not really good enough to go to heaven, when well, we're going to send you to purgatory, see? And now, but it's a, but it's a it, it, and I don't mean to say this wrong, but it is true, it's a sham because what they do is they use that to get money from you because if you give money, then they will pray for your departed loved one out of purgatory to go to heaven. And I've even had priests say to the fact that if you don't give money, then in time, if the ka-ching, 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 ka-ching doesn't ring down in, in there, then you go to hell. So it's a thing to manipulate people to give money. See, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. That's, that's just the way it is. And of course, if you if you if you you know if you were married to a husband and a wife and you're a Catholic and you didn't get along and you died and you went to purgatory, she ain't gonna get you out. She gonna she gonna leave you in there. So it's not a good deal. Or vice versa. But yeah, you are a Catholic. Tell us about it. Spent years in purgatory. Go ahead. Go. Where did the phrase bema seat come from? Bema seat. Bema sheet is an old term that comes up with the guys around the uh, 1700s, 1800s. Uh, it's based on the, uh, it's used for the judgment seat of Christ. It's based on uh, a Greek rendering of one of the words that deals with the judgment seat of Christ. And I, for this point, I can't remember which one it is. But it's, it's not used much anymore. Uh, back in even in my day, uh, which was back in the uh, 70s, uh, and they, it was a big word even then. But in the last 30, 40 years, 
You don't hear much of it anymore as people have gotten away from that. But that was a big term to def define the judgment seat of Christ uh, back in the 1700s and really big in the 1800s and up through the 1900s. You're going to hear a lot of the old evangelists. They don't even call it the judgment seat of Christ. They call it the Bema seat. Uh, I think even Larkin calls it the Bema seat in his book, uh, I think. And uh, it goes back to one of the words that's translated at it from the Greek into the English that the word is bima, and so they are connected with bima, so that's where it comes from. But you don't hear it much anymore. Gee, I thought you were going to enlighten us on purgatory. You were just for... Yeah, you're in for life. Yeah. But just so you, you, know, you understand, I don't want to jump from one to another without solidifying everything, you know, that teaching of, of uh, that he asked about there, uh, you know, you've got to realize that in some things in the Bible, they have been standardized for so many years that you're not going to change it. Uh, the mark of a good, mature Christian is to understand how everything is and then realize that, you know, there's some things you're just not going to change. Another one that's an obvious one, or really two of them, but the biggest one that we all are familiar with would be even the concept of Christmas. If you know anything about the Bible at all, you know that Jesus Christ was not born on December 25th. You know, that, that's, a, that's, that's just not true. If you know, his date is very well clearly given in the Bible, uh, or, the, or when he's born, uh, would be the Feast of Tabernacles. And that would be in September. And uh, that is very clear for anybody who just has a, a common grasp on the Bible. Now, truth of the matter is, December 25th is, in pagan times, is the birthday of Baal, the sun god. And uh, the whole concept, and we've laid it out before in Jeremiah chapter 10, about the Christmas tree, how that was part of the pagan Baal worship. And, uh, and, and December 25th was the birthday of Baal. And so it was celebrated by the pagans on that day. And what happened was when Constantine back in 300 AD brought all the pagans into the church, he allowed them to bring in their pagan holidays. And what he did was take the pagan holidays and, uh, and Christianize them, so to speak. And they found their way into the church. Now, I, I know Christian, I know Baptist churches right now as we speak that that the message that they will preach nine times out of ten in December will be, you know, don't have a Christmas tree. You know, it's, it's, it's satanic, da-da-da-da-da. Well, I mean, the bottom line is simply this. There, there are some things that you just have to deal with. I mean, I guarantee you if we started preaching uh, by 1st of December that not to have a Christmas tree, and it was, it, was, it was demonic, and it was this and it was that, and you're not supposed to do it. If you're a real Christian, you shouldn't have anything to do with it. We'd be looked at like we're a three-headed monster. I mean, we, nobody would listen to us. Now, my point is, there are some things you have to be smarter than the problem. To me, it's not an issue, because I know when he was born. If you've been around here and been in Bible Institute or just been to Bible studies for probably two years, you know we've been over it 30 times, probably. Another one is Easter. And, of course, Easter is the word Ashtar, which is the god of fertility. And that's where that came in with Constantine. So there's a lot of things that are maybe not exactly the way they need to be, but you're not going to change them. So you, 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 you do with what you've got to deal with, but when you get your own people and you grow and you come to the point that you understand what's going on and you have a handle on things, 
then you, 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 you teach it the way that it is, but we ain't going to change it. We ain't going to change it. So, Just so you understand, that's how that thing works. And there's a lot of, not a lot of things, but there's some things in the Bible that uh, uh, the way we talk about them is not exactly the way that it is. But they're not major doctrinal issues. They're just things that, uh, that just come up through Christianity, and that's the established thing now, and you just got to stay with it. And when you get the opportunity, if people stay around long enough, you grow. There's a lot of things in that Bible that, like I said, for us to be effective in what we do, Paul says it himself. He says, I become all things to all men, that I may win some. That there's some things we just got to deal with, even though and you teach them and when you get your people, you teach them the right way, but you also teach them to have the ability to understand that when you get into situations, those aren't the things you fight over. Yeah, Joe? Okay, let me get him back here. He had to stand up for quite a while. Real loud now. He's what? Stationed in South Korea right now. Stationed in South Korea, okay. Yeah, my brother was watching on the news today that they're reporting that North Korea started putting battlefield nukes along the 38th parallel. Is there anything in the Bible about that? No. Uh, his question has to do with the fact that, that Korea, it was, I, I heard that too, that North Korea uh, is putting battlefield nukes along the 39th parallel, which was the debarkation line at the end of the Korean War, where they stopped the war. Um, anyone know if there's anything in the Bible about it? The only thing that you're going to get out of the Bible on it in particular wars is the war that takes place before the second coming of Christ. Uh, the thing you got to realize is that this world, as it gets closer to the end and everything that's going on, uh, the more unstable that it is. Most people don't understand that, you know, the Korean War started in 1950, 1951. It was over uh, as far as the hostilities by about 1953. Uh, it's not a very popular war because it came along too quick after the big one, World War II. But the thing that most people don't realize is that that war has never ended. They never signed a peace treaty, nor did they ever signed an armistice. If you had any idea of history, you know that when Germany surrendered at the end of World War II, uh, they signed a peace treaty um, and they signed a, the document that brought an end to hostilities. Everybody knows about the Japanese because they did that on the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Harbor. And you've all seen the pictures of all the commanders from all the different nations and all the, all the Japanese embassies there and they all, MacArthur was there and they all signed the document and that ended hostilities. That didn't happen in Korea. In Korea, there never was an end to that war. Uh, what they did is they called it, they called it a truce and an armistice. And they marked the, they marked the end uh, of the aggression at the 39th parallel. That pretty much splits North Korea and South Korea right in the middle. And they are still uh, in, an, in, a, in an act of war. They just haven't been aggressive. North Korea is, is still very communistic. North Korea is against everything in the West. North Korea, uh, you know, they just shank a South Korean uh, destroyer here a couple of months ago and lost a lot of people's lives, and there's always been conflict. We still have troops, uh, as his brother obviously is, we still have troops and always will have troops on that line of demarcation. 
because of the fact that uh, that war could start just as quickly as it ended at any time. Now, it's been 19, almost 60 years uh, since, they, uh, since that war uh, started, but uh, it's never, never come officially to an end. So they're putting nuclear weapons, uh, what they call uh, battlefield nuclear weapons. They're not the ones that we blow up the world if they just, they're very devastating in a smaller area, uh, but they're nuclear-based. They, uh, they have been doing things like that all down through there, and that war could pick up any time because it never really ended. That's something that most people don't understand, that North Korea and South Korea could go back at it at any time because there never was a peace agreement. All they have... All they have is an armistice at the 39th parallel, and we still have probably hundreds of thousands of troops over there uh, expecting that uh, it could go off again. And uh, it's a, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a volatile place. Most people don't even think about it anymore because of all the other problems we've got to worry about. But uh, North Korea is a very, 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 very uh, worthy adversary. And, um, you know, that's what happened. We almost had Korea whipped when MacArthur uh, did his deal and he met with Truman there on, uh, uh, on Wake Island there and, and he wanted to give Truman an assessment of what was going on and he basically said that, that they were probably going to defeat the North Koreans uh, by the end of the year, which was about four or five months. Well, that made Truman happy and he went back and told everybody. But what happened was is because they got too close to uh, and were on the offensive and what happened was it looked like North Korea was going to fold up. One night, without anybody knowing about it, about 800 Chinese came across the border and joined the Koreans, and it was another whole mess. And it, uh, it trapped a lot of American soldiers in places that you don't even know about, like the Chosen Reservoir and, uh, and those kind of places where boys froze to death. They used to stack their bodies up like cordwood when they froze to death. They didn't know what to do with them. And it was one of the bloodiest, dirtiest little wars that had come along in a long time. But... Not too many people talk about it, think about it, or know anything about it. But uh, there's no real biblical significance to it other than the fact that we are in a very unstable world. And I believe that all of the things that are happening in the world, even though one of them in particular may not be a decisive thing, all of them together are pushing the world to a brink of where somebody's going to have to do something. And I think that's what you look for. It isn't either Red China or Iraq or Iran or North Korea. It's everything that's happening globally right now. If you look at it and you notice it, I mean, uh, the, world, the world is about as unstable as it has ever has been uh, in any time in history. The economy's unstable. Um, our own country's unstable. Our political scene is unstable. Um, the world is unstable. And uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's, not, there's not much of a worse mess we could be in, but there's a worse mess coming. And God's people in America, anyhow, are totally unprepared for it. We got our head in the sand like it ain't going to happen, man. And I'm telling you, this world is going to boil over like a, like a pot, and uh, probably not in the too near future. And uh, it's a thing where uh, I keep preaching every Sunday. I keep talking about it every Thursday night. I keep trying to infuse it into you every chance I get. That the only thing that's going to get you through. Your money's going to be worth nothing. Your gold's going to be worth nothing. Your assets are going to be worth nothing. You're gonna, we're going to lose everything that we have is going to go to zero. And the only thing that is going to get you through is your relationship with Christ.
And boy, that's where most of God's people are going to really have a tough time because they don't have one. And that's the problem. Yeah. Are we around for the big war or do we get raptured and then the war happens? His question is, are we going to be around for some of that or are we going to get raptured out? Well, I, I personally, I hope we're around for some of it. I don't, I, I really think that this is my, this is, it can go either way. It could either go, because we are the only part of the church that has not paid a price for what we believe. We are the most spoiled, selfish, ungodly Christians <laughs> in the planet, man. We are. We have so much that we have been lulled to sleep of the real need in this world, and we wouldn't walk across the street to win somebody to Christ. And it's a thing where, uh, you know, uh, when people have a lot, they get spoiled. That's true of our own church. I've often thought about just taking a Sunday and telling everybody just not to show up today and just go, go to another church and appreciate what you got here. Maybe two weeks, maybe a month. Take a month off. And then give you the idea of going out and finding another place and see if you can get what you get here. Because you know why? Because you get spoiled. You get spoiled. And you know what happens when you get spoiled? You have everything you want. You get cranky. Yeah, you start, you start complaining about things. And, uh, you know, it's like, a, it's like a people who live in a mansion, who have servants, who have everything they want. And, uh, you know, they, they don't have to do anything. And yet they're never happy. You know why? Because they got too much. And it's a balance that's hard to find, but that's what's wrong with America. And I see this thing going one of two ways. One, either God's going to come back and take everybody out of here at the rapture, and we all stand to the judgment seat of Christ as naked as jaybirds because of the fact that we just blew everything we had. Or God lets us get some of that gold tried by the fire. Personally, I'd like to see the gold tried by the fire. You know what I think this church needs? Same thing Christianity needs. It needs a great line in the sand. If things got really tough, that it really got, you know, you realize and understand that, uh, that, that what this government is doing very slowly, it's taking everybody who is in opposition to it and making them the bad guy. It's happened before down in history. We just don't be our students of history. In World War I, they, they took all the Germans and the Italians because we were at war with Italy and Germany, and they put them in, they put them in uh, concentration camps because they were enemies, even though they were full-blooded American citizens and posed no threat to this country. We did the same thing in World War II with the Japanese. Just because of the color of their skin and their eyes were slanted, and because of Pearl Harbor, we put concentration camps and we put them out west someplace, and we put them in behind barbed wire with machine guns on the wall to keep them in there because they were somebody that was a threat to our national security. We've already done it down through history in our own country in the last hundred years. If you can't see where this thing's going, that you and I are going to be the threat. Somebody asked me one time, uh, well, how's God going to explain, how, how's, the, how's the Antichrist going to explain all the missing people, the rapture of the church? Well, he won't have to if we're all in a concentration camp someplace. If you think that can't happen, and I think it's a good thing, because I, I, I just, I'd like for somebody to come in here and just yell at the top of their lungs on some Sunday morning, if you're here next Sunday, you go to jail. See who shows up. See, what Christianity needs is a good separation from the men from the boys. 
And he may go that way. He may come down and let us, let us find out what it's really about. And personally, I'd just as soon have that happen because what fears me more than that is standing up there at the judgment seat of Christ alongside a Waldensian or an Albigensian or a Huguenot or somebody that really paid the price down through history and I stand there with nothing. I mean, he gets his legs pulled out from under him. He gets his arms pulled out. He got his fingers cut off. This woman had her baby cut open while she was still pregnant and threw the baby up and caught it on a sword. And he goes through that thing. And I get up there and say, yeah, well, we had a tough time. The air conditioning didn't work for about six weeks and we really sweated a lot. Don't think that's going to play. So I don't know for sure. You could probably go either way. But personally, for all of us, as hard as it may be, you better get your eyes off of what we got around here and you better get long distance on standing up there before him. You got a job to do. And the devil wants to do everything to keep you from doing it, so he's going to give you everything that you want and put the worst friends in your world, in your life, to help you drag you down with it. And uh, you're going to wake up one morning and wow, it's going to be a whole new world. Joe Christensen, my buddy, what's your question? Uh, you gave a four-pronged point outline last Sunday in your message. I did? Uh-huh. You know what? I don't know that I have verses for them. That is basically a sermon that I would throw together in a last pinch if I needed some place and somebody said, you need to preach. And I saw, I got about 50 sermons in the front of my Bible. And I think that's where that one's at. And... Uh, Yeah, I don't have any verses for it. I got um, an unsaved man is four things. He's without hope. He's without God. He's without uh, strength. And he's also without excuse. Now, what if I was going to preach that, then what I would do is, uh, in my mind, um, I would just develop each one of those points um, and build it around uh, the last point, which would be he's without excuse. So you could basically get any verses in the Bible that deal with, uh, with not, you know, uh, Jesus Christ being our only hope. That would be a lot of verses in Romans. Uh, without God, um, there's any number of verses for that. Without strength, uh, that would be the one I gave you over there where I said in due time, Christ died for the, without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. That'd be a good one. And without excuse, that'd be Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where he says they were without excuse. And so I would just develop those. Those aren't, I don't have those really developed out because for me, I could take that outline and just run with it for about an hour without worrying about the verses. And, and, and uh, we got in a real bond, I just make them up. They wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> I saw one time I was preaching and I, and I was just thought the people weren't paying attention. I want to give them the spiritual test. So I said, okay, now I'm going to show you the greatest verse. It's going to help you with this. I said, turn to Hezekiah chapter 3. And I just waited. Five minutes later, they were still looking for Hezekiah. They thought it was in the Bible, see? So anyway, so I don't really have the verses on it uh, there, but you, they're just mounds of them you can get. But that is a great sermon, by the way. What? <laughs> it is a great sermon. Oh, yeah. You want some more? I got a whole list of them here. I'll go walk you down the list. I got some great ones here. I like stuff that's real quick, real fast, and will jab you, and you can get out in 20, 30 minutes, but you just stick them like a stuck pig. Excuse my 
Yes, ma'am. Oh, I got a, I can't hear you, honey. You got such a soft, heavenly little voice, and I got dull ears. Going to have to work back here and go ahead. What is it again? About what? Suicide. Bible say about suicide. Well, that's a good question. What does the Bible say about suicide? Well, let me start out by saying this. When we go through biblical counseling, we're going to cover the concept of suicide. Because if you get into the ministry, it's something you're going to think about a lot. One time I was in a little conference, and there's a guy here in town who I wouldn't mention his name. He's a big-time preacher. And his big stick was, before he was a pastor, he was kind of an evangelist. And his big stick was, was, uh, was suicide. And he would go into schools because there was a, a rampant thing of kids committing suicide. And this guy got, this guy got, this guy didn't believe the Bible at all. And uh, him and I never quite got along together, as you might guess. And we were in a little forum one place, and he had the, he had the critique of being Mr. Suicide. I mean, he, he, you know, he, he dealt with, he would, he would talk about how many places he's been, how many suicides he's prevented. Uh, he would do some pretty stuff, weird stuff. But anyway, and so we're in this little forum together. And, uh, and he's laying out about, what he knows about suicide and laying all these things down. And, uh, of course, none of it had anything to do with the Bible. It's all that stuff that you get from, you know, the secular world and dibble-dabble a little this or that or that. So it came to my turn. And uh, they asked me uh, what my approach was on dealing with suicide. And I said, well, I said, first of all, I said, um, I appreciate Brother So-and-so here. I said, uh, now, I said, I said, the difference between him and I, and I said, just so you understand, I said, this is not a criticism. I said, he takes his, I said, I, you got to understand before I say anything that I take my approach from the Bible. That's the only source I have. And I knew by saying that that I was, he was going to come back, you know, or something. So I'm, I'm you know, he's, he's pretty stupid. I'm setting him up. I said, so I, I take my approach from the Bible. And I said, I just want you to know that, that uh, there may be people here today that, uh, that you may not understand what I'm saying or you may not agree with what I'm saying. So that's okay, but I just want everybody to know, and I always like to put this out before I say anything. My source of information for everything I do believe and that I'm going to give you is one book right here, the Word of God, because I believe that that has all the answers. And when I said, and when I started to say that, he interrupted me and he said, well, I don't appreciate that. I, she said, because I base all mine out of the Bible. And I said, okay. I said, then, then let him and I do this together. I said, if the Bible's our source for everything and it's going to be the source for suicide, I looked at him and I said, how many suicides are in the Bible? He didn't know. He didn't have a clue. Now, what I've done is I've set him up to the place where he's he shot his mouth off of how much he knows about the Bible, and the Bible is everything. And then I asked him how many suicides were in the Bible, because that's where I'm going to base my teaching on suicide. He didn't have a clue. So then I added salt to the wound by showing him and them that there are seven suicides in your Bible. 
Now, if you want to understand suicide, then you study these seven suicides. Five of them are physical, two of them are spiritual because you can stay alive but commit spiritual suicide. See? So I started going down and I told them, I said, you know what, if you really want to understand why people commit suicide, then you need to understand the seven men in the Bible or the seven people in the Bible that committed suicide because their lies the reason why and the understanding of why suicide is, why people do it, because in every one of these cases, you get a whole story that shows you exactly what put that person into that mindset to commit suicide. And I said, and then and only then will you understand suicide. Now, when we get into our biblical counseling concept here this next year, and I take some of you and really try to fine-tune you into that, uh, we will definitely go through the seven suicides and you'll understand not only what it is, but from the Bible standpoint, you'll understand. See, to me, nothing else exists. I could care less what somebody says, well, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine just put out a great thesis on suicide. So what? So what? What has I got to do with the book? The book is a definitive on life. You know what Proverbs said, Solomon said, don't you? He said the Bible is, contains the issues of life. You know what suicide is? It's an issue of life. Now, here's the standard teaching on it by most churches. And the most teach, churches teach that, uh, most theologians teach, especially the Catholic Church, that, uh, that if you commit suicide, there's no way to go to heaven. See? And I don't, honey, I don't know if that's what you're, what you're coming off of or not, but I'll give you the best answer I can here in this thing and show you what the Bible says. The Bible is not so much what it says about suicide as what it doesn't say about suicide. Now, we all like to have one sin that is, and I don't know why this is, we just all like to have one sin that is unforgivable. I, I've never understood that. I've seen guys get up and they talk about murder. You can, you know, murder is a sin that if you commit it, you can't be forgiven for. I've had other people get up and say, well, adultery is a sin that if you commit it, you can't get forgiven of. Maybe that becomes in the Old Testament, that's the way it worked out, but I don't know. But in, the other one is somebody said, uh, somebody says all the time, you know, well, if you commit suicide, you can't go to heaven. Well, you know, and, 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 and the reasoning is this, because it's the only sin you can't ask forgiveness for. Now, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, from a, just a normal mindset, I mean, if you, if you got to get forgiven for your sins and you commit suicide, you know, uh, how do you ask forgiveness for after you killed yourself? Of course, I always find a way around it. I just ask forgiveness before I did it. <laughs> now, here's the problem with all of that. First of all, let me say this. From the Bible standpoint, and I don't have time to bring you through the seven suicides tonight. Her question is, what does the Bible say about suicide? Here's what the Bible says about suicide. Suicide is no different. And the other one is, somebody, said, uh, somebody says all the time, you know, well, if you commit suicide, you can't go to heaven. Well, you know, and, and, and the reasoning is this, because it's the only sin you can't ask forgiveness for. Now, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, from a, just a normal mindset, I mean, if you, if you got to get forgiven for your sins and you commit suicide, you know, uh, how do you ask forgiveness for after you killed yourself? Of course, I always find a way around it. I just ask forgiveness before I did it. <laughs> now, here's the problem with all of that. First of all, 
Let me say this, from the Bible standpoint, and I don't have time to bring you through the seven suicides tonight. Her question is, what does the Bible say about suicide? Here's what the Bible says about suicide. Suicide is no different than any other sin that you're going to commit. Now, here's what I teach about suicide. And you want to get this down. This is very important. Suicide is the last bad decision that you're going to make in a whole life filled with bad decisions. This is the last bad decision you made. You see, we look at suicide, I, I don't know why we, how we do it. We look at suicide like, well, so-and-so committed suicide. Well, we think that he had a perfect life and everything was just fine, and then one day he just went out and saw something and said, I'm going to kill myself. No, no, nobody does that. Suicide, getting to the point of suicide, there is a paper trail, as we like to say. There is, a, there, is a, there is an ongoing series of events that brings a person to that point. Now, if he's an unsaved person, obviously he's lost without Christ, and we know how that's going to turn out. But if he's a saved person, the only way a saved person gets to commit suicide is a long list of other things that are sins in his life before he made that choice. And you're going to find that the choices that we make in life, if they're good choices, and this is why I preach that you ought to live your life by biblical principles, follow biblical principles, do everything that you can by biblical principles, because they're always going to lead you to make good choices. But we know in a perfect world that would be true, but we don't live in a perfect world, so, you know, my life is always filled with people who have made bad choices. My job is to try to help them turn their life around, but I got to be honest with you, in my ministry over the years, I've had something like uh, nine or ten people commit suicide that I was associated with. I got a call one night from the Kansas City Police Department about a guy that uh, had been all kinds of mental issues and many problems, and they found him dead underneath the uh, uh, downtown, underneath all those uh, down there uh, where that UPS place is. You know, you got all those viaducts going under and he pulled under there in a car and uh, I don't know where he got it but he had a bottle of laughing gas uh, and uh, opened that thing up sealed all the windows and and, um, and and killed himself the reason why they called me is because they, when they found his car they found his bible and my name and my phone number was in the bible and they called me I went down and identified him and, and uh, sure enough he was dead and yet when you look at something like that I can, I can tell you in every case there was a long history of bad choices before they ever made that choice. And every bad choice you make takes you down a couple of little levels. And pretty soon, depending on who you are, your ability to handle stress or life or whatever, everybody's a little different, it gets you to the point where you get to the point where you think there's no way out and the only way out is to take your life. And a person who commits suicide, if he's a saved person, is someone who basically has grieved the Holy Spirit of God to such a degree, has messed up their life to such a degree and messed up their world to the place where they maybe lost their family, they lost their job, they lost this, they lost that, all because they won't do what they need to do to turn it around actually gets to the point where they make the last bad choice of killing themselves. And of course, suicide is not just one decision. Suicide is a whole process of decisions that just led you to the final decision. So if a person is saved when they commit suicide, that sin is no different than anybody else. A woman said to me one time, she said, well, how could you say that? How could you say, how could you say that, uh, you know, he could still commit suicide uh, 
not ask forgiveness for it, and, uh, and, uh, and still go to heaven. And I said, because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for all of your sins. I said, when he died on the cross, he died for all of your sins. You were not, he died, and you weren't even born for 2,000 years later, and he died for every one that you did. You think because it's one that you did that kind of looks a little different than the rest of them you've done, that he didn't die for that one. Let me tell you something about your life. Let me tell you something about everybody's life in this room if you're saved. We're going to talk about this on Sunday when we end up chapter 14. But the bottom line is this. When you get saved, God sees you as the finished product. God sees you and the plan that he wants you to accomplish for him. And then God puts into, into motion in your life everything you need to accomplish that plan. Now, you either accomplish it or you don't accomplish it based on you're doing what the Word of God says. I've seen people in bad churches that they don't get a lot of good doctrine and maybe they have a lot of issues uh, that they, they don't grow spiritually because the church is not conducive to one-on-one and helping that person get to where they really can have a handle on the Word of God. And somebody says, well, why is that person in there? I guarantee you, I guarantee you, at some place along in the process, God gave that person an alternative to get someplace where they could get everything they needed. But maybe their mother bought the pew or their dad put in the bathroom or their grandpa gave the organ. So they feel more of a loyalty to that than they do the Word of God and doing God's plan. But the bottom line is, the moment you got saved, God has a plan for you. He sees you in that plan, and he starts getting you everything in your world to get you to that point. You either accept it or you don't. You either get in the Bible and start working by principles and growing and getting what you need to make the right choices, or you continue to make the wrong choices, and it leads you down, and pretty soon you come to the point where you got, after what, 10, 15, 20 years of bad choices? You got depression now. You got all kinds of emotional issues. You can't function. And then you add to that, maybe you lose your wife or you lose your husband or and you lose your family or you lose your job and it keeps getting worse and you still won't do what you need to do to turn it around. And pretty soon you get absolutely so desperate. Yes, a saved person gets absolutely so desperate that they think that's the only alternative. You know why? Because they've gotten so far away from God and God's principles, they've lost the vision of whatever God had for them, and now they've drifted out there in the world, and the world has swallowed them up, and they're not happy. They've grieved the Holy Spirit of God. They won't do what's right. The farther they get from God, the longer it goes. I tell you this all the time. The longer you stay in that condition, the harder it is to turn it around. That's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that we ought to keep short accounts with God when you do it and it's wrong, you confess it and get back up and go. You know how hard it is for you to pick up the next day when you go one or two days without reading your Bible, one or two days without praying, one or two days without doing what God wants you to do? You kind of get out of sort. If you're an exercise person or you like to run or you like to do what you like to do, you kind of keep in fit or keep shape, you know how you feel uh, if you don't get the exercise about three or four days? You feel like a toad under a toadstool someplace. You just, everything's out of whack. Well, that's the same thing as when you don't get God in your life and the Word of God in your life on a constant basis. You take somebody, uh, Paderinsky was a great piano player. You know what he said one time? He said, if I don't practice, if I don't practice, if I miss one practice, one day of practice, he says, I can tell it in my playing. If I miss one week of practice, he says, my critics can see it in my playing. And if I miss a month of practice, 
everybody can tell it in my playing. You know why? Because you got to stay right on top of it. And that's exactly the way it is with us in the Bible. Okay, you know how it is if you get out of fellowship for a week and you just get miserable, don't you? I mean, if you're any kind of Christian at all and you just get some real thing whops you alongside the head and you're out of fellowship with God for a week or two weeks, you know how miserable you are? You know how you just can't, you get grumpy and everybody says, what's wrong with you? And you just, you know that? All right, just magnify that by five years, four years, 10 years. And at that point, you'll be so out of towards sorts with everything that you'll, you'll be out of reality and you'll be out of reality. And anybody who commits, uh, the, uh, commits uh, suicide is someone who has lost touch with reality because they think now the only answer is to step out of this world. And I've heard all the excuses, and none of them work. Because uh, if you're a saved person, God's got a plan for you, and God will take you out when he's ready. You cutting short God's plan by taking yourself out will lose reward to the judgment seat of Christ. But once you're God's child, you're God's child. And the thing that y'all got to understand about suicide, that there is no difference between suicide and any other sin you commit. It's just the fact that that's the last one you're going to do. And I guarantee you, anybody who commits suicide had a long list of other things in their life that, that led them to that decision. It just wasn't you woke up one morning and you, by noon you decided to kill yourself. You've had a whole long time of breaking down and getting away from the things of God that you've got yourself so out of touch with reality. When you go through the seven suicides in the Bible, you see how this thing all lays itself out. Every aspect of it is laid out. It shows you some guys why they got to that point. It shows you how they got to that point. It shows you the spiritual side of it, that some people live their life and die at 90 years old, but they committed spiritual suicide when they were 30 and have been dead spiritually for 50 years. You betcha. You betcha. So, honey, the answer to your question is, sweetheart, is, is that uh, the Bible says that it's just like any other sin, and if somebody commits suicide that's a saved person, uh, it's just like any other sin. Though they may lose reward to the judgment seat of Christ, the bottom line is uh, once you're saved and God's child, you're always his child. That was a very good question. Well, I don't know why you're closing the books tonight. We're going to go to 10 o'clock tonight, so just open it back up again tonight. I hate when people just tell me when I'm supposed to be done. I'm done. I'll tell you when to close them. Just kidding. All right, we're going to have a word of prayer. And then, ladies, uh, if you would, uh, and if your husbands are here, please uh, get the husband to get the kids and keep them out in that foyer out there. Also, if uh, you don't have a husband here and you have kids, if some of you other husbands could watch some of the other kids, but the folks that want to be uh, part of this uh, ministry down here that we talked about, please just move down in the front here. Guys, go ahead and tear the tables down. Um, and we'll, uh, don't worry about your prayer groups tonight unless you're not going to be in this thing, and then you can do whatever you got to do. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you for being here tonight. And uh, we'll meet with Megan here in just a few moments and we'll get this thing going. Don't forget, if you're going to